Hello, Liturgy Guy listeners. This is your host, Jesse Weiler, and we have another great episode for you. This week, we are talking about where the liturgy is celebrated. And I think you'll be interested to learn that it's not just the church building itself here on Earth in which we celebrate the liturgy. It actually goes well beyond that, and some really great conversations came out of this topic today. So without further ado, episode 10 of The Liturgy Guys. Enjoy. I'm going to talk to you today about the Mass. The liturgy is what enculturates the gospel for us. What are you, some kind of altar boy? And, and it enculturates it into our day-to-day life, our, our day-to-day existence. It's pretty dang exciting, huh? We're called not to some crapshoot called life, but to an adventure in fidelity that beckons us to cast out to the deep. The Liturgical Institute is proud to present The Liturgy Guys. All right, gentlemen. Where? The task for today, no, what? No, where? You're right, where? The task for today is to find out where the liturgy is celebrated. Awkward pause. (laughs) (laughs) And nobody knows. Nobody knows. Nobody knows. Well, in a way, that's true. Um, We don't really know where the liturgy is celebrated, although it's been revealed to us that the liturgy is celebrated primarily in heaven, primarily among the persons of the Trinity of perfect praise, perfect self-offering, and perfect uh, giving of glory from one to the other in the persons of the Trinity. And then this gets extended out into all of creation in um, something that the scriptures call the heavenly Jerusalem or the city of Jerusalem that is in heaven. Not so much as a place, you know, up in the sky, you know, so many miles, but a place where God is all in all and all traces of the fall, all traces of suffering, sin, sorrow, death, sickness have been um, forever uh, removed and full uh, communion with God is restored. And this is our own heavenly future, but it's happening by way of foretaste in our heavenly liturgy. So your average parish is a little square footage uh, area of the heavenly Jerusalem, or at least it it ought to be. Dennis, what you're talking about reminds me of um, a chapter in Cardinal Ratzinger's book, The Spirit of the Liturgy. He uh, makes a similar point. Well, actually, he says, people ask, where's the liturgy celebrated? Why do we need sacred places to celebrate the liturgy? If Jesus has already won the victory, why do we need to have certain designated places set apart? And the answer that he gives is that while, yes, he has won the victory and the heavenly Jeru- and he's reigning at the center of the heavenly Jerusalem, um, that reality is not yet here. We're kind of stuck in this in-between time of already won, but yet, not yet fully consummated. And so as he puts it in another place, the, uh, the heavenly Jerusalem is still under construction. It's still being built um, on earth us cooperating in Christ's work. And so that's why we do need, that's why we do need places set apart so that we can, through sacramental experiences, encounter the unseen uh, heavenly places. Is that the only way we can see that reality, see that victory is through the sacraments? Well, through sacramental signs, because, uh, um, you know, every, it needs to be mediated to us. I mean, this is just how, uh, how we work as, uh, as human persons. Uh, everything comes to us or, or we express meaning through our senses. And if those aren't present, then we don't, we don't come to know. And it's actually not that complicated. We're sensate beings. That means we acquire information through the senses. So things that are not sensate, like the heavenly realities, have to somehow be kind of translated into something we know. We, we can't detect 
uh, radiation, for instance. So you get a Geiger counter, and when you hear it beep, suddenly this invisible presence of radiation becomes knowable to our ears, except so, that it's operative at this high level, and it transforms us by being encountered. Sounds like the mass is tearing a hole in the time-space continuum. I don't know what that is either, but <laughs> it's something I've heard before. But it's probably <laughs> true. Mass does do that. It pulls that curtain aside and reaches uh, outside of time and into eternity. Right. And we've talked about this in terms of music, in terms of text, in terms of actions, but many of the liturgical things are oriented toward the eye. I mean, if you think about how many things in Mass are visual, from the chalices to the books to the vestments to the church to the paintings, the windows, the floor, the pews, the person next to you, seeing is this kind of primary sacramental experience within our uh, sensate capacities. You know, you can feel a painting, but you're not going to find out too much about it. When you can see a painting, you can see light, color, shape, uh, historical reference, all of that. So uh, eyesight has often been privileged as the primary or the most uh, sort of potent of the senses. So would you say that, um, you know, that's a, that's a huge need for us as Catholics to be able to experience all of this through sacramental signs, through sacraments themselves and things like that? Is, is that a huge need for us to be able to get that foretaste of heaven, to see, to see that? Well, a couple of things. I'll go first. It's not just a Catholic thing, the sacramental principle. Again, it's a human thing, but what the Catholic Church thinks that it does so well is it respects this hum our humanity uh, and um, elevates it and perfects it. It doesn't leave it in its fallenness, doesn't ignore it. It presumes it and builds upon it. And so this is not just a Catholic principle. It's a human principle before it's a Catholic one. So um, even people who, who claim not to be sacramental still in their daily lives go about uh, uh, interacting with other people through words and things they see and hear and touch and taste and smell and all of the rest. So what the Catholic Church does in her liturgy is provides a, a set of privileged signs and sacramental expressions that are conduits of unseen realities, which is, in this case, uh, the heavenly Jerusalem. And we do need these foretastes so that they can be encountered and we can be changed and formed by them. And if you think about the big picture, God said, hmm, I created you a certain way. You acquire information through the senses. And then the fall happens and the rescue mission of sending Christ and restoring the world happens. Well, how is that change going to happen except in the way that we receive that understanding? We can't receive it in any other way than we do. And so materiality is very, very important in Catholicism. You find strains of Puritanism every now and again where people say, oh, I can't trust matter. If I make a statue, it's too quickly going to become an idol. Or if I try to anticipate the heavenly things, I might confuse the earthly things for the heavenly things and then wind up worshiping uh, matter. But holding those things in balance that already, yes, accomplished, uh, our salvation is accomplished, but not yet. It's not fully applied into the heavenly realities. That's what we're waiting for. And so you encounter those things sacramentally. Jesse, before we started this, we were talking about uh, the, 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 the quality or the sound quality, for example, of the podcast. Mm -hmm. And, you know, you as a, a, somebody who's trained and a technician and, and, and knows about these things, you hear things about the sound quality that my untrained ear just can't pick up. Or in, in the past when I've talked to uh, Dennis about churches or design of an altar, certain things, my eye is not trained in the same way that his is to look at these things. But th with the training of his eye or the training of your ears, you start to pick up on uh, the, the depth, uh, the reality which is truly there. And this is, this is what can happen when we come to a church is our eyes become attuned, become trained, become acclimated to see things that at first glance we might miss. 
And so this sacramental anticipation of seeing things trains us to see and hear and taste and touch what's really there, namely heaven, the heavenly Jerusalem, so that one day, uh, Dennis has said this before, when God willing we uh, go to heaven, we know what it looks like. We know how to, how to speak, we know how to sing, we know how to act, because we've been practicing this for 50 or 60 or 70 or 80 or 90 years. Exactly. And if you want to see the heavenly things, and again, unless you're carried off to mystical special visions, which most of us aren't, the ordinary way to encounter the things of heaven is through sacramental mediation. So what does that look like? Well, in the book of Revelation, St. John says he sees a tear in the heavens. And the tear, the word tear is always important because the temple had a veil between the Holy of Holies and the other room of the temple, and it was torn when Christ died, meaning the Holy of Holies, which re represented heaven. So it was terrible. It was terrible, and, and it able, was able to be torn, <laughs> and, and it was torn. That, that was terrible. Um, but what does that mean? We can see through the veil into the heavenly realities, and in fact, the heavenly realities can come rushing forward uh, to us to restore the world. So St. John says, I saw this tear in the sky, and he could see through into heaven, and there were angels and saints singing around the throne of God, and there was a throne with one on it. It was a lamb standing as if he's been slain. And so we have some idea of what heaven might look like, but it's always theocentric. Everything in heaven is centered around God. It's always perfect. Everything there is restored to the glory God wanted it to have. And it's populated with angels and saints and the Trinity. And it's also cosmological in the sense that it takes into account all of creation. So the stars are mentioned. The stars move in the orbits God gave them. And so they contribute to their uh, worship of God by doing the things that they do. And so you can sit around and talk about these things, or you can look at them with your eyes if you see a great mural in a church, for instance, of Christ on the throne surrounded by angels and saints. That's the heavenly component of liturgy that we can't normally experience, although we know is there. Sound, it sounds to me, and this is partly because this is my background, but it sounds like great marketing. Uh, you know, when you, when you look at any marketing agency, we've talked about this before with, with signs. You, you see the golden arches of McDonald's, so you know what that is. Um, I've talked about this here at the Liturgical Institute, how we're marketing and how we want people to feel when they see images or different things from, from our website or things that we're putting out. These images, they convey something, which is what you know, marketing agencies are doing that to us constantly throughout the day. So in some ways, what the, what the church building and its constituent parts should be is a marketing campaign to the Catholic Church for heaven. When people Absolutely. encounter it, is Absolutely. That's, that's what they should uh, encounter is heaven. And people know deep down, something's wrong with me. You know, I do the things I don't want to do. I don't do the things I ought to do. Your older family members get cancer or die. Young people die. Children, you know, sometimes get cancer. So what is wrong with the world that we're suffering all the time? Uh, even though there's so much good, we take care of each other and we love our spouses and children and family and take care of the neighbor's lawn when they're at a vacation, all that little stuff. But ultimately, we deep down want to be in the time and place of perfection, united with God, united perfectly with each other. And heavenly Jerusalem is where that happens. Perfect assembly as the mystical body giving perfect praise to God. And we represent that architecturally and artistically in our church buildings. Uh, Dennis, I want to go back to this timeline. You were talking about, uh, uh, well, uh, Chris was talking about this hasn't happened yet. and um, You were explaining to me one time when we were looking at kind of church architecture, uh, using the old temple as an example, but um, the, the current period and, the, and what happens at Mass kind of moving towards heaven and heaven also moving towards the current period until the end of days, the, the eschaton, that's going to be that, that final merger of heaven and earth. Can you talk a little more about that? 
Sure. In the beginning, you know, in the Garden of Eden, there was no church building because the garden was the temple. It was the place where God dwelled with humanity and with creation. So you hear those beautiful phrases, you know, Adam and Eve are talking to God directly. He's walking with them in the cool in the evening. And then at the fall, and then, uh, you know, the, the um, chosen people will reject God and worship the golden calf and so on. There becomes this um, sort of fissure, in a sense, or the split between the perfect um, communion between God and humanity. And so the challenge is, how do you get that back? That's what all of salvation is about, salvation history is about. How do you get that back? Because so it, it was amazing. Everybody loved it. Well, that's right. Both, both of them loved it. I mean, imagine if your family got split up, you know, and your kids had a big fight and they run out the door screaming and you say, man, I wish the day would come when my child would come back and love me again (laughs) perfectly. Mm -hmm. And, you know, how many thousands of years it took in salvation history to restore and redeem all of humanity, to bring humanity, not just to the glory Adam and Eve had, but even beyond that, into the very heart of the energies of God himself. And it took God to do that, who took on humanity and brought it back to the Father. But what you see is there's an earthly reality that is somehow separated from the heavenly fullness. And if you look at the temple of um, Solomon, the temple of Jerusalem, there was a big room called the holy place. And then there was a veil, a big curtain. And on the other side of the veil was a separate room called the Holy of Holies. And that was where the Ark of the Covenant was. And that's where God's throne was on the Ark. And the presence of God was a very big thing in Judaism because they were always looking for that. Where is God's presence? Where is God's presence? Where is God's presence? Uh, Eve Congar famously said that the presence of God is holy and confers holiness. The presence of God is holy and confers holiness. It's like the presence of heat is hot and confers warmth. It just being there makes you warm. Being in the presence of God confers holiness. And so God's presence was limited to this little room called the Holy of Holies in the temple. And the high priest would go in there only once a year and bring all the prayers and petitions of Israel and the blood of bulls and goats. And then bring that blood out and sprinkle it on the altar and on the people. And so that blood became this carrier of God's presence, which is all a foretaste of the Eucharist as we understand it now. But basically the logic was this curtain between the room that represented heaven and the room that represented the earth. And then the priest would be the only one who could go through, and only the high priest could go from earth to heaven and back. And so this became the typological prefiguring of Christ, who was the true high priest, who came to earth in the incarnation, uh, died, passed through the veil, which is a phrase we still use for dying, went to the Father, and then brought all the prayers and petitions of humanity and his own blood into the true tabernacle. So Vatican II still speaks, you know, 1965, speaks of Christ ministering in the true tabernacle, the true Holy of Holies, which is the right hand of God. But that architectural building showed heaven and earth separated by the veil. And of course, we know what happened to the veil. Christ died on the cross. And it was terrible. It was terrible. And it was meant to be always (laughs) terrible. As we say in New York, terrible, terrible. Uh, So Christ dies on the cross. The veil that separates heaven and earth is torn, meaning... In the metaphysical reality, everything that separates heaven and earth is uh, is torn from top to bottom, it says. And so when you go to your average church, especially the more traditionally designed ones, you'll see the sanctuary of the church is an image of heaven. Who's standing there in the middle of the sanctuary? But Christ, represented by the altar. And then the people who are priests, uh, baptized priests, are out in the pews. And what does the priest do? Comes in the back door, dressed in the garments of salvation, uh, in the vestments, walks through the center aisle, down through the earth, through the people, steps into heaven again, brings the prayers and petitions of the people to the Father and the offerings of grain and wine, and then uh, they come back glorified as the bearer of God's presence, and then he turns around and comes back to the earth and leans over 
the step between the sanctuary and the, and the nave and hands the heavenly bread to the people. So that church building is an image of heaven and earth united is, is still with us. Each of us, individual Christians, are uh, a living cell in the mystical body of Christ. You know, but there's been some, I think, uh, uh, wrong conclusions relative to the church building that have come from that. Namely that because you and I and, and all of the baptized are members are, are the, the true uh, building blocks of the church, then it really doesn't matter, therefore, what the church building looks like because we are the ones with the truest dignity. And I think that's the wrong conclusion. I think the conclusion should be just the opposite. It's because you and I and all the baptized are members of the mystical body that the stones that symbolize us should be as beautiful as we are called to be through baptism. So a church building is a reflection of us. It's not, it's not that it's uh, inconsequential. It's very important. It has to be very beautiful, very symbolic, because the mystical body is very beautiful, and Christians are to be uh, very beautiful as well. And this is a reminder to us that this is the case. All right. If you think about the interior of a traditional, beautifully designed church, you'll find marble, you'll find woodwork carved into the shape of flowers, you'll find uh, gold and gems in the uh, chalice, you'll find silk and gold thread in the vestments. There's something about everything in traditional liturgy, properly understood, that is glorified eschatologically glorified. In other words, it reaches to the, our own glorious future and brings it back into our own time. So you go into a Gothic revival church, say from the 19th century or an actual medieval church, you'll see every square inch carved with little buds, leaves, flowers, and then overlaid with some kind of geometrical underpinning. People don't carve you know, a, a natural history museum scene into the wall where everything looks like it does on earth. It's shown in, a, in its glorified, perfected state. So the name of a church is the new garden. And in a beautiful designed church, you'll see all these floral images carved into the floor, the wall, the columns will have capitals with leaves on them. And then the heavenly uh, realm of the sanctuary might include paintings of angels, um, stained glass windows being this radiant jewel-like quality of the heavenly Jerusalem. So there's usually a difference between what's behind, we talked about the veil, so what's on the other side of the veil and then what's in the nave um, is kind of the earthly and then you know, on the other side of that veil is the heavenly. Is that usually discernible? Often, but it because the glory of heaven's been flowing into the earth, you'll see this. the saints will start blending into the nave, or the wow. nave will have a glorified perfection as well. And the buds and the flowers and the trees and the plants are no longer simply what you would see out in the field, right? So in our cathedral in La Crosse, St. Joseph the Workman, there's a lot of lilies, but the lilies are geometrically perfect. So they're not just a haphazard uh, growth of... Uh, of plants that you would see outside. They've been uh, divinized and heavenized. So they're natural, but like the, like the saints who have come back into our natural world, these natural things are growing towards that sun of the eschaton, and that's making them reordered and beautiful once again. So there's a beautiful kind of, I don't know, synergy of heaven and earth coming together in the church. And this is what we said at the beginning of this podcast is that you know, the heavenly Jerusalem is still under construction. It's not yet here. And we're, as Cardinal Ratzinger would say, we're stuck in this sort of in-between time of already but not yet. In the church building, you know, there's, there's a formula for building a church uh, that, that goes beyond what our, we can come up creatively. It's supposed to uh, grow out of this earthly uh, cosmos and be informed by and perfected by uh, heaven, this image that St. John had. And this is to aid in the Eucharistic celebration because the Eucharist is source and summit. It is heaven 
heaven meeting earth and we we hear this all the time and so all of these sacramental signs are to aid in this understanding of our heavenly future yeah, because right? you know what you're celebrating in the Eucharist, but where are you celebrating it? Is it some factory, a warehouse, your backyard? No, you're celebrating it in the heavenly Jerusalem, so it becomes an active visual component in addition to the actual rites, movements of the people themselves. You know, the Catholic Mass or any of the sacraments, they're not historical reenactments. Okay, so the priest doesn't walk out with, you know, sandals and long Jesus hair and a, a robe or something like that. Uh, the The chalice that he uses doesn't look like the one from Raiders of the Lost Ark. Yeah, that would be a big, a big thing that people say, like, oh, you know, why do you have all these or- ornamented, you know, chalices and things like that when that's not what Christ used? You know? Well, it's for the reason that Dennis just mentioned is that what we do in the liturgy is, while it has an historical, factual basis, all of that is now taken up with Christ to the right hand of the Father in heaven. And that's what we're tapping into. Um, if we're going back in the past, it's, it's via heaven. And so we're making present the, a heavenly reality that is going on eternally right now. So that's why the chalice looks heavenly. That's why the vestments look heavenly. That's why our language isn't just the mundane sort of man on the street. I mean, every man on the street should be able to understand it or does understand it, but it's elevated just like everything else in, in the church. I read in uh, one Orthodox writer that the liturgical Christ is a particular kind of version of Christ in a sense. You know, there's the historical Christ whose glory was hidden for all those years. But the liturgical Christ is always the eschatological Christ. And I think one thing, if people want to revolutionize their understanding of liturgy, it's eschatology, eschatology, eschatology. The end times, what are things like when the world is restored and glorified and brought back to the glory that God wants them to have? If you understand that every word is the glorified, elevated, poetic, sung word, every action is um, poetic, delightful, beautiful, easy, graceful, every uh, thing that you see is shown in its glorified perfection, then you'll see that the eschatological Christ is the Christ who is glorified, radiant, resurrected, the king of heaven and earth, although it includes his reality as a humble carpenter when he was 15 years old. That was veiled for a little while, but now he's on the, at the right hand of the Father in heaven and on the throne and ready to welcome us into that glory. That's a really important thing. He wants us to be where he is in the palace of the king. And therefore, we are welcome there, but he doesn't give up his own reality to welcome us there. And he invites us through a church that looks like the place where he is abiding. It's heavenly on the outside, on the inside. Uh, it's, a, it's, it's a marketing campaign That's of the great, church for heaven great marketing campaign and uh it's really it's really funny that uh you're talking about the eschatology dennis and we, we often think uh oh the end of the world like it's the worst thing nothing's left and like this is the complete opposite reversal of what our culture thinks yeah. you know, death is always a bad thing but really we're being pointed toward you know glorification right? think of eschatology like finally getting over the flu you know, mm-hmm. you've been suffering on the couch with your chills and fever and, oh, when will this end, right? Not that we don't like our reality. Our reality is good, but it's meant to be perfected and glorified. So when the end comes, it means no sin, no sorrow, no death, no suffering, no ugliness, no war, no oppression of the poor. Every good thing will become the permanent condition. And so that's what we're looking for. That's what we anticipate visually in the church building. We're looking for a spiritual vaccination and we know that it exists. <laughs> so uh, I think that's all we have for this week. And uh, it's time for uh, an email question. Mail call! Mail call! Oh, no, 
Moses, Moses, why do you question me? Why do you care? Today, we have a similar debate over this. Anyone know what this is, class? Anyone? All right, so we have an email from a deacon, uh, Deacon Stephen, and he says, what is the proper position of the deacon's hands at Mass during the Lord's Prayer and doxology? Uh, So you guys were talking about this uh, last week, so do you have any uh, response for Deacon Stephen? Yeah, this is uh, one of those good questions that's in many ways difficult to answer because it's not simply a matter of going to the book and finding exactly what it says. Maybe a couple of things uh, before we, before we uh, uh, try to get as close as we can to it. It's interesting to note that, so we're in the third edition of the Roman Missal now. Now, the first edition of the Roman Missal that came out uh, in the early 70s um, still had rubrics about what the subdeacon was to be doing, because until 1973... But what is a subdeacon? Well, there were, it's one of the minor orders, so after uh, the priest, there was the, the deacon and the subdeacon, who in many ways functions as what we would call today an acolyte, and there was a series of other uh, minor orders that were still uh, in use, they still are today in uh, some of the other uh, institutes uh, that would celebrate the extraordinary form, perhaps. But in 1973, uh, Paul VI, um, eliminated a number of the suborders, leaving us basically just instituted lector and instituted acolyte. But in any case, the first edition of the Roman Missal before 1973 still had to account for the use of the subdeacon in the Mass. Now, when the second edition of the Roman Missal, which I think is 74, maybe 75, uh, came out in its Latin typical edition, it almost had no rubrics at all about any deacons, subdeacons or otherwise. So we went from like everything to nothing. Yeah, yeah. And then in the third edition of the Roman Missal, which came out in 2000, and now we've been using it in English since 2011, once again, it takes, a, 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 well, perhaps for the first time, it takes really a good account of the person of the deacon, the ministry of the deacon in the Mass. And so there's a number of rubrics that are new to the third edition of the Roman Missal. And so perhaps if you're a deacon, it would be worth your time to, to, to maybe give a revisit or a refresher to this third edition of the Roman Missal. Now, that being said, if you were to go to what the deacon does in the third edition of the Roman Missal for the Lord's Prayer, you will find that it says nothing. 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 I was just... (laughs) But what it will say for the priest, it will say he says the prayer with hands extended. And this generally is the tenor of liturgical law, or even canon law for that matter. It tells the the person, the minister, whatever it is, what they are to do. And very rarely does it say, don't do this, don't do that. And so we might look and say, well, it doesn't say anything what the deacon should do, so he can do whatever he wants. Well, that's just not the nature of liturgical law. Uh, The standard position, I think, for the hands, and you would find this, I believe, in the ceremonial of bishops, is that servers and uh, other ministers would would have their hands together. I could have stood to verify this before the uh, the answer to this. Folded hands, is is that what we... I wouldn't say folded, it would say hands together, yeah. yeah. Yeah, but just because in the Roman Missal it doesn't say anything, that would mean that the normative position, and at least traditionally that is with hands together, should be maintained. If the church wanted the, the deacon, for example, to uh, pray with the Oron's position, it would say that exactly and explicitly that he should do that. But it doesn't. And so I think given the nature of liturgical law, the normative position that the, the deacon's hands would be uh, held uh, together. All right, excellent. Well, that is our question for the week. And if you have any questions for the Liturgy Guys, you can email us at questions at liturgyguys.com. And thank you, and God bless. The Liturgy Guys is produced by the Liturgical Institute. 
If you like what you've heard today, like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter. And be sure to check out liturgicalinstitute.org to discover more about our degree programs, public events, and publications. Refresh your soul and renew the church at what Bishop Robert Barron calls one of the very best places in the country to receive formation in the Catholic liturgical tradition.